Welcome to Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. How films are made and why they're made like that. Each week you pick a film, pick a movie, we review it, we talk about it, and we discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always, we'll end with our recommendations for further watching uh, based on the film of the week, the actors of the week, the director of the week. But before we get into this week's movie, we always like to start with a catch up on what else we've been watching aside from our movie of the week. So Sam, what else have you been watching this week? I have watched one of my favourite films of all time. Um, And there are some films that I've loved for years and years, like films that I've mentioned on this before, The Sting, for example, and some of the Die Hard films I've loved and watched and rewatched over the years. Some of the films in my favourite films have been relatively recent additions. I say relatively recent because I've just looked at the date this came out and it's now six years old. But it's one of my favourite films, and it's um, The Raid. It's a brilliantly simple film. The premise takes about five seconds to explain. It's Guy, as part of a police unit, goes into a tower block and can't get out. That's it. That's all it is. Um, the tower block is populated by gangsters that complicates things. He has a pregnant wife at home that complicates things. But basically it's a succession of fight sequences and they are beautifully choreographed. It's one of the most beautiful films to watch I've ever seen, which is a bizarre thing to say about a brutal Indonesian kung fu film. Well, not kung fu, it's... Um, it's Panic Chair? I can't remember the name of the martial art. Um, but it's it's a beautiful film and I would watch it and rewatch it and it has recently become available for free on Amazon Prime. So I enjoyed watching that and I enjoyed the fact that um, there were practitioners of martial arts um, rather than necessarily acting talent, although they are surprisingly good actors. Um, I'm just looking it up. It's uh, Penkak Silat, the Indonesian martial art, and it's a film by a Welsh director, surprisingly, Gareth Edwards. Um, but it's well worth your time. Go and seek it out on Amazon Prime if you haven't seen it, and even if you have, because it bears rewatching. Rob, um, I I also bizarrely have been watching one of my favourite films of all time. Oh great! I watched The Martian, uh, which is a film I loved when I saw it, and to this day still adore. And I thought Saturday morning, it's I'll stick it on, and so I I sat and watched The Martian. I sat, I looked after my daughter, and. You know, tied to the house, and you've a nil the things you need to do with when you've got a, a chunkle child. Um, uh, but yeah, I did it whilst watching the uh, the Martian, and it's it's still as fist pumpingly invigorating as it's ever been to me. It's everything I like in a movie. It is uh, smart, intelligent. It is scientific, and it's full of beautiful vistas of of Mars. So yeah. I just I, I I loved it then, I love it now, and I can't rave about it enough. Given that this segment is normally Rob and Sam talk about films that were all right, that that was a pretty good one. 
Yeah, we did it right there, really. Yeah. You know, very often we just, you know, go, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Um, right then, Rob, talk to us about this week's film. So, this week's film, we are moving on to a brand new franchise, a brand new trilogy, and that is the Robert Zemeckis um, written and directed trilogy, Back to the Future. Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. It's Back to the Future, uh, which we'll call part one. Uh, for the sake of clarity, it's set in 1985, in which a 17-year-old high school student, played by Marty Marty Marty, played by Michael J. Fox, called Marty, ends up being sent back in time uh, to the 1950s, uh, in which he interacts with his then teenage parents, um, and is instrumental in altering the future, and in a way that he then needs to rebuild that future himself. Um, it stars. Christopher Lloyd as uh, Doc Brown, his scientist friend, Leah Thompson as his mother, and Crispin Glover as his father. Um, there's some excellent support from character actors uh, like Thomas Wilson playing Diff Tannen, um, and uh, James Tolkien as Mr. Strickland, the very strict school teacher. I think this film probably, of all the films we've covered so far, needs the least introduction. Mm. Uh, apart from maybe Ned Jones films so presuming I kind of know your answer Sam yeah. your thoughts on Back to the Future <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I'm not really a fan um, no I I love Back to the Future I am a big fan of this franchise and I think it's in, it's not only a good film but an important film as well it's the first of several films about time travel and that's something we can talk about later um i think re-watching it the the thing that jumps out at me i mean i've i can't think of how many times i have seen it but the thing that stuck with me this time is just how clever it is some of the details are really nicely worked uh, you have for example, uh, Goldie being the mayor in 1985, and then you go back to 1955, and he's the busboy in the in the cafe. Mm. And you have mirroring scenes between George McFly and Biff Tannen right at the beginning, and when when Marty goes back to 1955 first. But it's also you have historical nods. You have. Um, Doc Lloyd sits down after a, a setback in his inventions and talks to a picture of Thomas Edison and that's a huge figure in the history of American invention and it's also someone who's associated with lightning. There's clever things like that and the whole the narrative the the the, the narrative storyline about sort of Marvin Berry and Chuck Berry and the birth of rock and roll and you start thinking about Johnny B. Good and who invented that and it's just clever things like that um, mm. yeah if you think too hard about things like that, the Chuck Berry storyline and the idea of time travel in general then okay it might start to fall apart 
but uh, I, I, I have a theory. Right. Then, then I'll come to that in time. I, I have a time travel theory. Right. Um, but I, I have misgivings about certain things to do with history on, on that front. But in general, this is a, a really solid film. So, Rob. I mean, I, I obviously need to agree with everything you just said. I think that this film is is a classic for its its for very good reason. It is almost untouchable in its in its classic nature. I agree that that watching it back this time, I noticed things I didn't notice before. Like I didn't notice on prior watchings how much of a complete hole Hill Valley is at the start of the film. Hmm. I I didn't think about that because it's you know the the cinema is now a triple X porno cinema. Uh, there's graffiti everywhere. It's a very run-down town in many ways. And it isn't something that I picked up on when I first um, watched it. And things like, like Doc Brown in the modern day, modern day he says, for 1985, lives in what clearly was the garage of his old house. Hmm. Um, and there's this real, like, watching it back now, I really noticed how there's difference between these, these two towns. And the idea, maybe this kind of feeling of a golden age maybe the 50s were um compared to what's happening in the 80s and and that everything seemed nicer and better and cheerier um and you know also at the same time there is nastiness abounding and all that kind of thing mm. but I, I, that really the sort of the the little things like that as you say i really noticed this time um i think another thing on that sort of decay front and 1985 being a step back in certain respects is is Lorraine's drinking was something I hadn't noticed um Mm. and Lorraine is a chain-smoking alcoholic in the first 1985 you see and then in the second 1985 something's changed and was it her son's intervention in 1955 that stopped that but you see at the, at the beginning, like she is a. I mean, lots and lots of the figures that you see in the beginning are ground down by life, by work. But she mm. is a particularly sad figure. And I was struck by, I mean, just. It, it's sort of a bit throwaway. She's presented as an alcoholic. And you stop and think about it, and you think, this is really tragic. Yeah, I, th- I think you. I mean, it's. The vision you get of his family at the start is tragic, but I think it's, I mean, it's made all the more tragic by the end. Mm. That you know, the the, the the cousin in jail and the the, the, the uncle in jail. Um, clearly, the, the brother and sister aren't doing loads with their life. Uh, dad's being being bullied by Biff, and the mum's clearly quite unhappy and uh, an alcoholic. And it's very. It's, it's it's a very kind of bleak story, and that's why I think the, the, the initial jump back to the fifties um, can be quite a shock. The idea that these people have um, this history—I think it's strange. Like it's, I'm trying to think how to say it. It's like as I've got older, this film has spoken to me in different ways. Mm. And I think when watching this as a teenager, one of the messages that you kind of pick up from it is that your parents have a history. They have that they they weren't just parents. There was a time when they were teenagers mm. and were complex individuals and had lives prior to um, 
you and even the story the story the start you hear the story about how they um uh how they met and fell in love and the idea that he was hit by a car and like a florence nightingale figure sort of took him in and fell in love and then it turns out that he was a peeping tom and his mum has some sort of bizarre cinematicistic tendencies where she sees a boy in pain and wants to sleep with them but they that these films of the secret history of the parents and you sort of have this realization along the same lines as marty does that his parents are people mm. and and that they and it sounds like a, a silly thing to say but there is a, a realization that they have a history and a life and a whole sort of animus outside of just being his parents if you stop and think about it his his mother is seriously psychologically disturbed like she, yeah. she has this attraction to well she gets attracted to someone in a car crash and then she's only attracted to George when he puts himself in danger and saves her and then like in the first 1985 she's completely fallen apart mentally it's mm. just horrible it's it's a very messed up situation very yeah. much indeed um, before we move into too much of the um, of our analysis of it I do want to quickly touch on my time travel theory mm, go for it now I, i'm i'm a big believer i like i like to try to find unity in films i like to find the idea that there's a truth behind this and these aren't just random choices in terms of narrative so the the things you've got are that he comes back and changes history he changes his family falls apart and then they disappear basically and he has to do things to get them back together and the idea is that he can change history but at the same time, you've got this idea that he's the one who set Goldie Wilson onto being mayor. He's the one who invented rock and roll and skateboarding. Um, so even though those three things existed in 1985, there's the idea he has to, like, somehow he has to have invented them for them to happen. But he can't have been there the first time because they put it together. So given that there are changes in the second 1985, you have to accept that he makes some changes. So here is my theory. My theory is that there is a a weight of history, a weight of destiny in this world. The idea is that there is a, on the long enough time level, things are going to happen. So somehow someone is going to show Chuck Berry rock and roll. It may not be Martin McFly, but someone was going to do it. Mayor Goldie Wilson ended up being, a, being the mayor, no matter what, because that's a big, long timeline thing. So even in the world of the hill valley there are certain points that have here because there's a weight to history where all marty can do is slight start to sort of bend it into so he can change his family he can change the history of biff he can change the individual's history he interacts with but he can't change big history and so all that he can do even when he turns up and ruins things all he's going to do is delete his family you know the, the, the picture he has it isn't the, the wishing world doesn't disappear the trees mm. here it's just his family disappear so he can interact with like a, a individual timeline but he can't interact with the big things of the world right there is a weight that the idea that you like a cruise ship you, you, you can turn 10 degrees to here there but at a certain point you're going in a certain direction you can't you know make too big changes unless you can make lots of big changes which will come into next week but that's my my theory right i see i like it the thing is the one thing that sticks with me with this is the whole Chuck Berry rock and roll thing now this is particularly poignant because um, well we'll 
release this in a couple of days as as we're recording this is a couple of days after chuck berry's death so Mm. his his history is fresh in the mind um for me i just wonder whether your theory that someone had to have shown chuck berry rock and roll discounts the idea of individual genius individual inspiration maybe i can say again I think that Chuck Berry would have invented rock and roll. Mm. Whether he heard it over a phone from his brother Marvin, or he heard someone else scatting on a guitar and picked up, like he he had the he needed the spark, but it would have come anyway. Mm. Is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So, I think to look at this maybe in a bit more of an analytical thematic way. And we've touched on it a little bit so far in our discussions, is the idea of history mm. and and personal history and sort of public history um, is very key to this film. You know, the, the idea that the, the history of the town, the history of Hill Valley, being the um, the, the, the lightning strike on the on the tower, is what saves him. Yes, I think also it's. I mean, it goes back to this this cleverness that I st- talked about at the start, but there are the the presence of history, and in this case, the the history of the strike on the clock tower is makes itself known throughout. I mean, you have Marty brandishing the flyer at points because Jennifer's written on the back of it. So, although in the scene he's showing Doc Brown Jennifer's phone number, Jennifer's message. To the audience, he's showing a reminder of the weight of history. Mm. So the, throughout, you have the, these reminders of this this weight of history, this presence of history. I think also it's it's we talk, often said you know the idea of history repeating itself and it's a, a common idea. But you say so you have it here. You have this these echoes through time of Biff bullying his dad in the modern age and bullying his dad back in the day and these these cycles repeating themselves and him you know picking up on the back of cars as skateboarding and these these thematic meet um sort of memes repeat themselves in both um time frames and i'm sure as we get into next week and the week after we'll talk more about those kind of idea of of history repeating itself through these three films but, you know, the, the, the Strickland is the same person he was in both situations and that Marty is his dad, it seems. And that's something I think that Marty has to come to terms with. Because at the start, obviously, he doesn't relate to his dad very much in the opening, okay. the opening scene. Um, but once they go back in time and he starts to see his dad as a schoolboy, there's he starts to see a kind of... And you see this kind of mirror wing, you know, talking about... Um, you know, not wanting to show anyone his writings in case they didn't like him. And it's almost word for word what Marty said earlier about his guitar music, his, his music. And I think that there's the, they said, these, they use the narrative and especially the dialogue to kind of mirror these two people who at the start seem very alien to each other, but very quickly you realise, oh no, they're very, very similar. Um, and they just need to kind of see that. Hmm. You have, and then you have a scene like the scene in the in the diner when George goes up to Lorraine and reads from his book because he's noted down what Marty's told him to say, and mm. you have that moment when, 
actually the father speaking the words of the son. So they sort of merge, they become one person. And if you think about that too long, you think about the son speaking romantically to his mother, which is weird. But the, the point yes. stands that, that you have the conflation of the father and the son. And like you said, they, they were distant at the start of the film. You didn't you didn't understand how they could, could even be related. And actually, it's something that Marty says later on. He doesn't know how he was even born. And you have that sort of metafilmic step out of this mm. this narrative and George George says, oh, what did you say? And and Marty says, oh, never mind, we can carry on with what they were talking about. But you have this, this point in the diner when these two narratives come together and you have Marty being his father. And you have that as well with the when when they're sitting in the car outside the dance, you have Marty in the role of the partner to his mother fulfilling this position that his father was supposed to fulfill. And yet he feels weird about it and she feels weird about it because it's like kissing a brother, which is understandable. But you have that sense that Marty is, is occupying a position that his dad should be occupying. There's something quite edible about that um, in many ways. Mm. Um, in, in, in this idea that the replacing of the father albeit in this case very unwillingly um, and it is played for laughs um, but it is also saying quite dark and it's quite the idea that he needs to he ha- his, his hand is forced to step into that Oedipal role because mm. his father can't um, and his father needs to be sort of not, not shown but the idea that, the, that the Marty is forced into this role with his mother that, that's really interesting because you have so many stories and it's it's called the Oedipus Complex for a reason and that's the the founding story about it but you have so many other stories about relationship between mother and son and yet this is one that stands out as being he's unwillingly forced into that position you think mm-hmm. of something even something like Hamlet where he he will willingly be in this position where he he loves his mother and he cares for his mother and he he speaks out against his uncle but you have something like this where um marty's been actually been forced into this position and it's it is weird you don't normally get that in culture you you normally get someone who is okay maybe maybe he's unwittingly in this position but and and because of the dramatic irony of the situation, it might be played for laughs at his expense. But here it's played for laughs in, in a very different way because he is on the side of the audience. He knows that and in in this dramatic situation he is outside of the story as well because he knows that it can't take place. So mm. in, in this story about being removed from history and affecting history, whether you're affecting a line, as you said, or changing the course of events, which I I, I agree with you, I don't think he's actually doing, he's changing a particular through line. Whatever you have, whatever whatever there is, Marty Marty is on the side of the audience. He he himself is sort of standing outside the narrative in a similar Mm. way to... The content of the story. I'm, I'm not. I'm trying, trying to express myself here. I'm not entirely sure I'm doing it quite right. 
I think I'm getting what you're saying there. Good, I, yeah. I, 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 I agree. He, he is, he, he's in very, very nature. He's a man out of time. Mm. Um, in the same way we are, and you know, we talk about often past about having, having a character who is our, who is our avatar, who is our, our sort of our route into the narrative, and that's clearly Marty here. The, say, say the dramatic irony that, in this situation, we've got a character who knows, who, who is aware of the dramatic irony rather than just being the audience. But that, that irony, that dramatic irony is is played for event and you have him as the order member going i know what's going on here and this is weird um unlike norden only where it's just the audience that knows we have a, a knowing character uh, mm. to the tension and the stress of what's going on and we have a knowing the nature of a, few, a time travel film and they did this being this being an explanation of history is that we know they're gonna end up together and we know that that, that, you know, that, that, that there's going to have this really, and, and that this is these are star-crossed lovers or whatever. Um, but the very nature of it being a Turner film, but with the Berry stuff and the Goldie Wilson things, if you picked up on those early notes in the um, film, you are part of that dramatic irony, knowing what knowing what's going on, even at the time when the characters don't. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Rob, do you have any recommendations for us? I do. I've I've got two to recommend. Um, so the first um, is a classic actor. Uh, I like them. I want to recommend them, and that is one of the earliest crushes in my life, um, and that's Leah Thompson. Um, and Leah Thompson is been in many great films. Um, I, I'm not going to list all of them, but the one I want to talk about is 1987. So two years after the future, some kind of wonderful. Um, it's a John Hughes film, who I am a, a big fan of as well, um, and it is it is a sort of traditional John Hughes romance relationships kind of uh, sort of story, um, and it's all about you know, three friends kind of coming together and a couple breaking up and getting together. It's very John Hughes Hughesian, shall we say? Um, but she's in it, and she's uh, she's one of the leads, and she's very very brilliant in it. Uh, she plays uh, Amanda Jones, one of the main characters. My second recommendation is maybe a thematic one based on Back to the Future. And that's a film from four years later. Uh, director Stephen Herrick, writer Chris Madison, Ed Solomon, starring Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. It is the other seminal time travel comedy, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It is more slapstick and certainly more comedy and less dramatic irony than, than the Back to the Future um, franchise, but it is it's brilliant. It's Keanu Reeves at his funniest, Alex Winter, George Carlin at great, and it has the same exploration of history um, and less its weight on the on the current world, but it's history itself. And it's a very different idea of time travel, um, and that's something we can touch on another time. Mm. So yeah, Bill and Ted's Adventure and some kind of wonderful Sam. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure actually quite good from a historical education point of view like the the figures they go and see and and the stuff they talk about it's actually quite an interesting film um mm. yes this week recommendations i have gone as route one as you can possibly go with back to the future and i've just gone for the two main actors and thought about <laughs> what they were in um so michael j fox um, there is not a lot to pick from recently with Michael J. Fox. If you know anything about him, you know about his his diagnosis and coming to terms with Parkinson's. And he is 
rather more of a political campaigner nowadays, although he has done some acting work recently and he's done lots of voiceover work. Um, one of his more recent acting roles is as a recurring character in The Good Wife. Now, I have a strange relationship with The Good Wife. I'm never sure whether I particularly like it, and I wouldn't recommend this show necessarily. But what I would recommend is Michael J. Fox in this, um, because he is absolutely excellent. He is introduced, and, and they, they play off his disability in interesting ways as well. He is um, presented at the beginning uh, as is supposed to view him as a sympathetic figure because of his um his his disease and then it turns out that he is being shaky and doddery because he is up to no good and he is a a twisty manipulative character so mm. is he, he is very good in the good wife and my second one is Christopher Lloyd uh who was Uncle Fester in Adam's Family Values, which I think is... You, you talked about underrated films recently. I think mm-hmm. Adam's Family Values is an underrated film. It's a fun film. And it's a... Yeah, it was a fun film in the early 90s. Also, it was on TV an awful lot at the end of the 1990s. So I saw it quite regularly on terrestrial TV and enjoyed it and enjoyed Christopher Lloyd in it so I'd recommend mm. that excellent I think that's a, a great place to end it so we'll be back next week with Back to the Future part 2 till then you can come find us online we are on Twitter at British Podcast you find just me at life underscore academic and you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. We're also on Facebook and Reddit and all those kind of places. Uh, but Twitter's probably your best place to go and get feedback from the two of us on this show. Um, and we'll see you guys back here next week. Oh, before we go, I just wanted to mention there is a podcast recommendation. Oh, uh, yes, of course. Move in, in March using the hashtag tripod and... I keep forgetting to mention this as we get to the back end of March. Probably should mention it now. So uh, we've got a few uh, podcast recommendations for you. Um, and the ones I would recommend, I listen to a fair few podcasts. Um, the podcasts I listen to tend to be either about comedy, I find stand comedy very interesting, or about politics, I find contemporary politics interesting and disturbing in equal measure and pop culture generally so the three i would recommend are from the world of comedy um stuart goldsmith's excellent com com pod where he interviews comedians about the way they work um from the world of politics the partly political broadcast with tin do and um from the world of pop culture, probably doesn't need recommendation because NPR's huge and everyone knows about all their podcasts, all their many excellent podcasts, but I'm going to throw in a recommendation for it anyway. It's the NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast that I enjoy listening to. I must say, I don't actually listen to any of those. I did listen, I did listen to wow. Happy Hour for a while, but I, I kind of got tired of the American snark and uh, I, I stopped listening.
Um, but it is very, uh, very, very good if that's your kind of thing. Mm. I'm going to try and recommend three podcasts that are nothing to do with film in any way, um, but yeah. are ones that I love. So my first recommendation is from Really FM. It is the podcast called Lift Off. It is a Fortnite podcast all about everything NASA related, space related interplanetary life related it is news and opinions and all that kind of thing um i'm a big space nerd and that's uh, one of my go-to places to getting the latest information about about space shall we say second recommendation is from a american australian um network called sans pants radio uh, they do very comedy sort of pop culture focused stuff and i'm gonna talk about their show D is for nerds it's basically Comedians from Australia playing D and D. It is the DM is very brutal, um, and people die and lose limbs. But it's hilarious. It's very sweary. So it's not one for the kids. Um, but it's it's if you're into listening to people talk about and play games, it is one of the best out there. And the last one I recommend is from Jamie Jeffers. It's an independent podcast, and it is the British History Podcast. Uh, he's at about episode two fifty three hundred now. And he is taking the history of Britain from the early days of it being an abandoned uh, outcropping of a European Pangaea all the way through to modern day. He's currently somewhere in, in the Tudors, I believe. I'm listening through from the start. I'm somewhere in the Romano-British area, uh, episode 30-odd. Um, he makes it interesting and exciting in a way that history has never been to me. So, yeah, that's my third one, the British History yeah. Podcast. We'll throw links to all of these in the show notes, guys, so you can check out there. Yeah. Um, well, I know very little about space and am a philistine and want to know even less. Um, I don't have any interest in D&D, but the British History Podcast sounds brilliant, so I'm going to go and uh, check I would, that one out. I'm a big fan of it. It's really... You know, Sam will know me from my school days. I wasn't a big uh, academics history person, um, but that has really, really enthused me about learning a lot more about, about our history. Um, so yeah we'll be back here next week with uh, less recommendations for podcasts but more talking about Marty McFly The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries Rawr.